0: This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence.
1: Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Every week we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the issue with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast, the Spectator's Executive Editor.
0: And I'm William Moore, the Spectator's Features Editor.
1: This week, as riot police clamp down on protesters in Russia, is the history of Stalin's brutal regime repeating itself?
0: Plus, has Russia's invasion of Ukraine highlighted the failures of globalisation?
1: And finally, what's happened to Durham University? And why is its reputation plummeting?
0: First up, in this week's magazine, Sergei Redachenko, a Cold War historian, reflects on Putin's attempts to clamp down on Russian protesters. He sees a similar pattern to Stalin's Soviet regime. Joining Sergei is Dr. Jade McGlynn, who is a specialist in Russian memory and foreign policy at the Monterey Initiative in Russian Studies. Sergey, you write in this week's magazine about the violent oppression of anti-war demonstrations in Russia. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about what's been happening?
2: Well, since Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, thousands of people have gone into the streets to protest. Now, protesting in so-called unsanctioned demonstrations is illegal in Russia, and people who are protesting uh, are detained. Uh, most of them are released. They can be fined and often are fined, but they also face the possibility of uh, much graver punishment. And we have seen the escalation of hostile rhetoric on the part of the Russian government about what is no longer allowed, etc, etc. So it's becoming more and more scary, I think, for uh, people to go out onto the streets. And it's still remarkable that so many people, we're talking about thousands of people, still have gone out, protested individually, collectively in uh, recent weeks.
1: And you talk in your piece, Sergey, about your own experience of protesting in Russia. And you say that in retrospect, 2019, when you were protesting, was in many ways a good year, you say there was a whiff of repression, but there was still scope for protest. I mean, how bad are things getting out there right now?
2: Well, things have been getting progressively worse over the years, okay? The, the, we we have now had something like more than 10 years since the Bolotnaya protests of 2011-2012. And then, of course, we had those protests in 2019, which were precipitated by fraudulent election or failure to register candidates in local elections. At that time, I was in Moscow and I joined the protests. Uh, some of them were sanctions actually, something that is completely unthinkable in the current situation. So we can no longer talk about sanctioned protests, but some of those protests back in 2019 were sanctions, sanctioned and, uh, and thousands of people went into the streets, assembled, uh, heard speakers, etc., And then some were unsanctioned. So there was, for example, that large walk around Moscow Boulevard, the Gogol Boulevard. Well, there's it's called uh, the Boulevard Circle around Moscow, where people just went into the streets and were having what they call just a walk. And of course, they were being detained. And it was a very scary experience. You know, I, among others, also walked down those streets. And uh, you could see the forces that the Russian government assemble, including the so-called cosmonauts, uh, which is what the right police are called, because they wear this kind of equipment, and they're all black, and they have the visor uh, to protect them allegedly against violence. But those were very peaceful protests, except for the violence deployed by the right police against the protesters. Now, that was scary. People were beaten. People were dragged down to the ground, dragged into police vans. And if you're part of that crowd there... You would basically you were look you know they were looking for for somebody to have an eye contact with. Once they establish an eye contact, they would just run after this person, grab that person, and drag uh, that person into a policeman. So that is you know that is a scary experience, and uh, I can speak here as my you know as a middle aged person. Yeah, after that, I thought okay, I think I've had enough violence in my life, and I was intimidated. That that was the last time I joined protests. And Russia, I personally was intimidated. And I think a lot of Moscovites and a lot of people around Russia are also or have been afraid to go out and protest into the streets. So there's been this atmosphere of fear that has just crept in and has increased in, in recent years. Uh, and of course, what we're seeing now with this anti-war protest is, is a further confirmation of this.
0: Jade, you're a historian of Russian memory, uh, and have recently signed on to write a book titled The Kremlin Memory Makers, The Politics of the Past in Putin's Russia. How does the memory of Stalinism live on in Russia? And and how do you think that memory has been uh, dragged up when it comes to the invasion of Ukraine and, and the Russian government's response to the protests?
3: Mm-hmm. Well, I think in some ways here it's best to to start from Putin's speech yesterday, which felt like a deliberate attempt to rekindle some of the traumatic um, I suppose not so much collective now but cultural memories around Stalinism with its references to national traitors and and fifth columns and actually like um, I suppose purges or, or cleansing of of russian society this isn't the first time that he's used this sort of language um, in his speeches i mean we've been hearing about foreign agents you know since 2012 if if not longer and of course there was a a major turning point around the time of the balotner protest which sergey just mentioned and which also happened to be my first experience of protest in russia and seeing an old lady dragged off into a police van. I sort of had the feeling that I wasn't in in Kansas anymore, to to coin a phrase. But I think there has been a deliberate, particularly recently been a deliberate referencing to the the Stalin era. And in terms of how the memory is used for, for want of a better word, I mean, it's not that everything in the Stalin era sort of over the last 10 years has been rehabilitated, but it's more that because... The upset, because of the strong sort of political obsession with the great patriotic war, World War II, of course that necessarily dates <coughs> <really clears throat> Stalin because he's so closely associated with it. And there's also been this takeover of organisations that present perhaps too much truth about the Stalin era. So there's an acceptance, okay, some things went too far, but those organisations that really try to, to shine a light on just the awfulness and the, and the brutality of great terror and, and of, in general his, his reign... Like Memorial uh, are shut down or similarly, there's the Gulag Museum in Pierre, which was taken over. And instead of sort of exhibitions about what the Gulag prisoners went through, there were exhibitions about how they contributed to the war effort or what it was like to be an NKVD officer or a KGB officer. Officer um, during that time, so there's this sort of twisting, this trying to tame the gulag memory, but also at the same point to try to rekindle it, um, perhaps to discourage people to to spread that fear um, that, that many people in Russia today feel.
1: And Sergei, you talk in your piece about how whilst archives of repression are still largely closed in Russia, as Jade says, they were actually, in fact, more open in Ukraine and giving researchers an opportunity to take a look at the internal workings of Stalin's, as you put it, hideous meat grinder. Do you think that partly explains why Ukrainians are fighting so hard right now against Russia?
2: Well, certainly Russia has failed to undertake a thorough de-Stalinization. Stalin was condemned in a secret report by Nikita Khrushchev in February 1956. His crime for condemned. His corpse was taken out of the mausoleum, where it used to be. It was burned, and the ashes were interned to the Kremlin wall, where they still are, and where the Communist Party of Russia comes, you know, to pay their tributes. Or certainly have been doing that in recent years. But the problem, you know, the problem is there has not been a full reckoning in Russia. Uh, the archives, by and large, the archives of repression specifically remain closed. I'm not saying that all the archives in Russia are closed. As a historian, I've spent years in the Russian archives looking at various documents. So some documents are being or have been open, but certainly the the KGB or NKVD archives, a lot of those and Lubyanka, you know, the headquarters were now occupied by the FSB. A lot of those archives are closed and that I think it, it leads to a situation where the Russians have never really been able to face up to their own past. We we know that hundreds of thousands of people were killed, massacred, you know, executed, sent to the Gulag. But often the executioners, well, in, in most cases, the executioners did not face justice. And there's not, no, there hasn't been a real debate among those who were the victims of purges and among those, and, and those who actually carried out those criminal orders that were brought down from above. So Russia has failed in its destalinization. And this is what's scary, because today we see re-Stalinization of a kind. Some of those same things that we witnessed in the Soviet Union during Stalinist repression, some some of the language, the legal basis for repressions is being brought back in, and there hasn't really been, uh, you know, historical discussion. But this is not what happened in some of the other uh, post-Soviet republics. So, for example, in the Baltic states, the archives of repressions have long been open. The KGB archives were open. The same applies also to Ukraine, where the uh, KGB archives or the uh, state security archives are open to researchers.
0: Jade, would you tell our listeners a little bit about some of the propaganda techniques that the Russian media have been employing uh, in regards to the invasion of Ukraine? And I also wonder, do you think that these techniques, do these seem to be working in terms of methods of keeping the uh, the Russian public on on side
3: Mm. so of course it goes without saying that those Russians who get their information from state media and there's also not that much media that hasn't now been banned that isn't state media sadly will be seeing a very different impression and will be having a very different impression of what's happening in Ukraine so a lot of the I mean, it builds on a narrative really that started in 2014, if not earlier, that after the, the protests in 2014 against well, that essentially was sparked by then President Yanukovych signing a, a trade deal with the EU, but it, it sparked it morphed into something much more sort of um, general against the corruption and nepotism, much of which you'll also find in Russia. When those protests happened and Yanukovych fled. The uh, narrative in Russia was incredibly intense and it was around the idea that Nazis or Nazi collaborators with Ukrainian nationalists had come to power and they were going to commit a genocide against Russian speakers. And that justified the intervention in Donbas. That justified the annexation of Crimea. And that narrative has kind of continued over the years. And it's now again been picked up, and we see this in this argument that okay, the operation is um, that the special military operation, as they're calling this ghastly war, is an operation to denazify Ukraine. And I think, in some ways, it is effective because it picks up on a narrative that's been you know really embedded. I don't think it sounds as insane to a lot of Russians as it might do as it might do to us. But on another level, I think there are limits to what it can do. And I don't think the the propaganda has been anywhere near as effective as it was in 2014. I think as well, people have grown a little bit tired of this constant politicization of the Great Patriotic War, of the World War II cult. And so I think there's a little bit of suspicion, I, I think more effective perhaps than the propaganda is the fact that I think a lot of people don't want to know the truth, because firstly, it's just normal, there's a normal amount of cognitive dissonance. I think if if Britain were doing this, I wouldn't really, I would find it difficult to accept that Britain was, was bombing, you know, maternity wards, though I, I like to think I would accept it if, if shown evidence, but it's very difficult. And if somebody's offering you a different, much more, much more acceptable narrative, um, and especially, you know, if Um, that narrative allows you to then feel proud of your country I I can see why to some people they might accept that especially if coupled with you know long-standing political apathy and you know a heavy heavy dose of fear as we've been speaking about.
1: And Jade obviously this week we saw the protest from Marina of on, on Russian state tv how will that have been perceived by Russian viewers? Well, it's interesting
3: because I think a lot of people are thinking, oh, she could possibly, you know, she she risked facing, depending on which um, the part of the law they applied, she risked having to spend up to fifteen years in prison, but instead they just sort of gave her a fine, which translated into Western currency doesn't sound that much, but it is it is still quite a lot of, um, it's still quite a lot of money. And I think the reason for that is that actually Pierre Canal, which is the, the state um, TV, wanted to sort of downplay the incident and presumably their responsibility for it as well. So I think there's an effort going on to try to make it look as if, well, it's not really, it's just one sort of crazy like lone person and there's not really much talk about it. So they don't want to turn it into a thing, as it were. So I, um, in terms of what effect it will have, i I don't know. I think it's difficult to say. I think if it's coupled with i think it was a really brave move and i think if if coupled with with other similarly sort of brave and and out there statements it, it, hopefully it could start to break through or at least maybe push people out of their out of their slumber a little bit or their perhaps their their choice um, to, to to not pay attention um, but i don't think i don't think alone it's going to be i don't think alone it's going to be enough as, as brave as it was
2: i just wanted to add very quickly to what jade is saying i completely agree It's it's important to remember that the Russian legal system is extremely arbitrary and that laws are in place to basically put anyone into prison for years and years and years. But that doesn't mean that everybody's going into prison for years and years. The purpose of this is to intimidate people. Yeah? So, for example, I've looked at, at my own <gasps> uh, trespasses and transgressions under the recent laws. And I know that if, I go, if I'm ever arrested in Russia, I could, technically speaking, face decades in prison. You know, does it mean that I will actually be arrested and spend all those years in prison? Probably not, or maybe, who knows, you know, we we can, but then this this is the whole point, right? We don't know. And so people are intimidated. They are afraid because the laws are there to put them away and some are arrested and some go to prison for nothing. I mean, we've got Alexei Navalny, who's currently facing another trial and he's facing 13 years, I believe, for absolutely for nothing, right? Absolutely for nothing. But this is a reminder to those who dare to resist, that they too could join the ranks of, of those who are behind bars uh, for, for really for very small transgressions.
0: Just, just finally, Sergei, I, in your piece you say that back in 2019, you saw there was a hope uh, of halting Russia's fall into authoritarianism. Does any of that hope still exist?
2: Well, hope dies last, as they say, and uh, you know, that's all we have at this point. The general trajectory has been very, very disturbing. There has been more repression over the years. Uh, there have been more laws that have been passed that punish dissent. People have been put behind bars. There are loads of political prisoners in uh, serving their terms now, as we speak in Russia. Yeah. So, the situation is scary, but we have to remember, you know, every, of course, you know, everybody likes to compare uh, uh, what is happening now in Russia with the era of Stalinism. As a historian, I can say we're not there yet. Yeah, there's a long distance to cover between what we have in Russia today and, let's say, 1937, when hundreds of thousands of people were being executed, when millions of people were in the Gulag. But what I find scary personally, is that it's no longer unimaginable to think in those terms, whereas before now, if you ask me a few months ago, I would say, well, yeah, well, Putin is a, an authoritarian, he is hideous in so many ways, but look, he's not Stalin. I can still say that, but I'm no longer so certain as before, because history of Russia is full of blood and tragedy and I'm just afraid that we're beginning to repeat that history and uh, you know it's just really a scary thought for a historian and for a Russian.
0: Thank you Sergei and thank you Jade. Next up. While Western countries swiftly united in a chorus of criticism against Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Rod Liddle has written for the magazine this week that Putin's invasion has exposed the West's impotence. He joins us now, along with James Forsyth, our politics editor. Rod, in your piece this week, you write about how a deluded liberal belief in globalisation has led to the West's impotence. How did we get here?
4: Well, because we swallow, we're we're very given to wishful thinking, and Western liberalism and Western neoliberalism has always been... Taken very much by by wishful thinking, so for example, the idea that everybody else in the world wants the same kind of regime that we do with uh, three separate toilets for everybody and and all that kind of stuff you know and and democracy and and, and freedom of speech where, where it's paintedly not. The case, you know, and, and it never has been the case. And, and the, the idea about globalization, as put forward by Fukuyama in that essay in eighty nine, and later, of course, in the famous book, the most wrong book in the history of books, which bless him, was that globalization would necessarily uh, enjoin other countries towards a Western liberal uh, uh, form of government uh, because it would it would it would stress that. Uh, uh, Co determination, uh, uh, interdependency, uh, working together, easy relations with everybody. It's just, even in 1992, when I was sallow and callow, rather, and I was sallow as well, uh, I thought that this was unmitigated shite. Uh, And so it has proved. Because what's happened with globalization, the interesting thing is that it has empowered hugely every ideology other than Western liberalism. So we're in a position now where we're dependent upon Russia for, our, for, for fuel, uh, Western Europe is, if not Britain itself. We're dependent upon Saudi Arabia for our fuel, two very autocratic, tyrannical countries. We're dependent upon Russia, and Europe is dependent on Russia, and so is most of the world for wheat. And what's happened with globalization is that the, the rather harder-nosed autocratic countries have seen that it can be an enormous lever for power and China has done this throughout Africa uh, and is doing it to us. We're dependent upon China as well. America is in debt to more than one trillion dollars to China. So globalisation has worked against liberal democracy, Western liberal democracy.
1: James, I know you feel rather more optimistic about the West. Do you think Putin's invasion of Ukraine has fortified the West? Well,
5: I think there's some truth in some of what Rob was saying about these dependencies on Russia, China, other autocratic regimes, which which clearly put the West in a vulnerable position. I think the good news at the moment is that the West has had a wake-up call. I mean, the West is realising that it, A, needs to be prepared to use its own strength more. Just look at the financial sanctions that have been imposed on Russia, which I think do also send a deterrent message to China about what it might be thinking about when it comes to Taiwan. And secondly, I think people need to realise that we need more resilient supply chains and supply chains based more around trade among allies than than the kind of pure globalisation of the 1990s variety that, that Rod is talking about. But I think that the West is actually becoming kind of more cohesive. I think the West had spent the last decade or or more even you know in in a very navel-gazing narcissism of small difference whether that be geopolitically between you know say the us and the eu over data privacy standards on, on, on technology or within western societies itself where debates over you know very small differences being massively magnified into great cultural schisms and i think we are once more realizing that a the western Powers in the broader sense of the world—I would include, you know, Japan, South Korea, Singapore—in uh, this, you know, need to come together to stand up to Russia and China, who want to, to 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 rewrite the global order. And also within Western societies, we are realizing actually these arguments that we've been having and everyone's been getting terribly worked up about are really not that important when compared to the big question about: Do you wish to be? a free society, or repressive, autocratic society such as Russia or China.
0: Rod, what do you make of James's uh, optimism there, that, that actually the invasion of Ukraine is a moment when the West wakes up and, and, and stops this, this navel-gazing?
4: Well, I, I, I don't think James has, has contradicted anything I've said uh, about what's happened in the past. I mean, James is looking to the future, and again, it's it's got a rather uh, optimistic tint to it. I think some of I think some of what James said is is absolutely right. We've clearly woken up a little bit, in that we are prepared to take the the kind of economic uh, action which, you know, hitherto we haven't done, which we didn't do over Crimea, we didn't do over Georgia, etc. Uh, we didn't do in Myanmar, etc. It's not just Russia, but th- th- there was that feeling, as you saw. Uh, Zelensky applauded by Congress, applauded in the House of Commons, applauded in um, the European Parliament, and getting nothing of what he wants, being sort of smothered with adulation, but by people who were effectively impotent to do anything to address the situation as it is at the moment. And I think that's for a, for a number of reasons. Some of, some of them related to globalization, but but for example, for the last 20 years, the West has been uh, determinedly destroying itself culturally uh, by undermining uh, the very things which we used to think brought us together uh, our history, our culture, our religion, everything is now kind of binned uh, in favor of this kind of cultural relativism and also a, a self-flagellation before every other every other culture in the in the world. And so it's very difficult to see. If you are British or American, why you would fight? Uh, why you would have any investment in this society, given that its elite thinks it's odious and is is an evil beyond all evils, and that's reflected, I would say, in the opinion polls which have come out recently, and which show, you know, would you fight for your country? Well, in Ukraine, it's about ninety percent. In Britain, it's twenty. You know. In America, uh, in America, I think it was 40. Uh, so, so we've kind of removed the point of our existence and so there's nothing to fight for anymore. I, I, I hope James is right, but,
5: but I, I don't see it yet. I don't, I don't see it yet. I think the cultural relativism in the West was in part because the West was so unchallenged. You know, I think if you think back to the Cold War, there, you, know, you could be a writer on the cultural left but you knew that authors in Russia couldn't publish their books and were being sent to Gulag. You understood that point of what was happening in the Soviet Union. I think a lot of Western cultural relativism in the post-89 decades was because the West was so unchallenged. I think now that there is this clear threat to the West, uh, and I think I mean, the, the threat in the longer term is clearly more from China than from Russia, but a very different way of organising society. I think it is going to make, you know, intellectuals, everyone, you know, think about, you know, do you do you fundamentally value your freedom of expression? And what underpins that freedom of expression? Other than the, the the institutions of a free society that have been you know so developed in the West, and I think that that, that will change some of the, the the cultural relativism that that we have seen so much of in recent years. I think mean, look, I think I think there is you know I, I, Rob was very polite and didn't suggest that I was talking unmitigated shit and being so optimistic in the way that Francis Fukuyama was, but but I really do think that this is a moment where. We are. We have to put away childish things, and we are realizing that we that we exist in a grown up world, and that, that 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 many of the freedoms and things that we take for granted, you can't take for granted because there are now states that seek to 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 challenge them, and I think to see uh, one sovereign European state invading another. Makes us realise that you know that these are serious times, and I think we will, I think our not just our politics, but I think our culture will also change and respond to that. Well, well, I I, I hope you're right, Ch- old oh, chum, um,
4: and I, I sincerely do hope you're right. I mean, there's a complicating issue, isn't there, which is on the cultural side of things. Uh, this is a an appalling thing to say, but one of the most powerful political speeches of the last two years came round about, I think it was round about May last year, from Vladimir Putin, who was looking at the West, and particularly Britain, the USA, and looking at cancel culture, and accurately pointing out, and this is the thing which is chilling, that the cancel culture was, was acting in a way which was not dissimilar to that which happened, which, which occurred within the Soviet Union. That was his direct comparison. And we still... We still accede to all these idiocies. and so for some people, the rather uh, austere and uh, totalitarian Asian version of democracy um, has some appeal.
1: And James, how easy is it going to be to wean ourselves off our relationship with these autocratic regimes? Obviously, Boris has been in Saudi this
5: week. So I, I don't. I don't think it. I don't think it is easy. I think that, 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 that we need to start a process, which is, you know, the sanctions on Russia would be so much more effective if the West had not left itself so dependent on Russian oil and gas. I think given that China is also clearly another state that wishes to upend the current international order the Pax Americana we should be looking to reduce our dependence on China from now on you know I mean you know we are hugely dependent on China for medicines for example you know that is clearly not sensible I think you know Australia's announced that it's going to start mining more rare earth minerals which are used in in, in electronics and defense equipment because that's a market that China dominates the US and the EU announced they they're going to cooperate more on electric car batteries again a, a market that China is seeking to dominate so I think you need the the, the global West to come together to try and build more resilient supply chains that can survive if we end up having to cut China out of the world economy in the way that we have cut Russia out and that we can do that as effectively as possible. Uh, I think on energy, the answer has to ultimately be more nuclear power and more renewables. I think, you know, I think this is another example of where we have the narcissism of minor differences. There's a great debate right now about, you know, do we want net zero or security of supply? Well, in anything other than the shortest time frame, the, the strategy you would come up with to, to ensure security of supply for the West when it comes to energy, to reduce your reliance on autocratic regimes, would be more nuclear power and more renewables which is also the same mix that you would come up with from a completely different perspective if someone said to you how do you create an energy supply that produces the fewest carbon emissions yet we, we are yet we are kind of flirting again we're having a kind of massive culture war over are you for security of supply on net zero when they actually take you to exactly the same place in, in anything other than the shortest of timeframes. so we need to become more resilient as a society we need to become less reliant on regimes that do not share our values and you know we, always, we need to accept that that is going to be less economically efficient than the globalisation model of the 1990s. But, but but ultimately, it is more sustainable in the long term and therefore you know, better for our prosperity in the long term. Because ultimately, I think we would find a world in which China wrote the rules of the road on artificial intelligence or data or all of any of those things a very uncomfortable place and it and it would undermine the foundations of free enterprise that actually produce the prosperity and and, uh, of our society and our civilization
4: i i agree can i just say i agree unequivocally with all the the last bit of what james was saying entirely uh, I think that's exactly right, particularly over nuclear power and renewables. Uh, and you're right that it's the answer to both questions. That's that's important. But, but there is a problem as well with the world order and this cultural relativism which we have, and which is that the institutions which we've built up, in order to kind of promulgate, you would have thought, a liberal democracy, do not do so. Um, so if you look at the United Nations, it spends an awful lot of its time screaming about uh, decolonization, uh, and the rest of the time uh, imposing various strictures on uh, Israel or various uh, resolutions on Israel. I mean, that's, that's the only democracy in the Middle East. Uh, it is not an ally. The UN is not an ally of ours in this. And more than that, if you looked at the, uh, at the votes uh, on the invasion of uh, Ukraine uh, by Putin, of the top 10 most populous countries in the world, five refused to support that uh, condemnatory resolution. You know, that's Russia, China, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and uh, India. Uh, and you can add into that other very, very large countries such as, uh, such as Iran and arguably Turkey, uh, though I was surprised and heartened to find Turkey actually kind of getting on board a little bit uh, earlier on in the the crisis by banning Russian ships from the Dardanelles. Uh, So it's not just China and Russia. It's kind of the US and Europe versus the rest with, as you know, uh, James rightly says, South Korea for various reasons, including economic ones, and Singapore. The others have no time for our our fripperies, for our niceties. India signed a a massive cut-price oil deal with Russia after the invasion, you know, and said, yeah, this is good for us, sod you. Uh, Pakistan signed a massive deal for wheat, uh, and uh, Imran Khan was there shaking Vladimir Putin's hand. Uh, We we do not have these very, very capable powers on our side.
0: Uh, Rod, you say in your piece that um, globalisation... Uh, it's been co-opted by Russia and China, and they're now exacting their ton of flesh. Yeah. Uh, to what extent do you think that was inevitable? Uh, I mean, is that a result of the kind of cultural relativism in the West that, that you've been you've been talking
4: about? Yes, I, I think it's I think it's also I think it's a consequence of our naivety. I remember 1989, 1990, when the Soviet Union broke up and the um, the euphoria about the peace dividend. And suddenly this thing which I'd had hanging over me in a personal sense, you know, for as a, as a Cold War kid uh, for 30 years, uh, which was, you know, nuclear annihilation, seemed to have gone, or at least certainly had receded a lot. But, we, but the blithe assumption that, A, Western liberalism equated to rationality, which I don't think it does necessarily, or that Western liberalism was was found attractive by other countries universally Universally, was utterly naive. And it left us open to exactly the kind of manipulation which we now have by Russia and China. China's offer of money to Africa, to African nations, is far more potent and attractive to them than are our mitherings over democracy and human rights. And I think the same applies for Russia and its it's soft, it's uh, soft power across the world with countries like, you know, Venezuela, uh, Tunisia, uh, various other countries which it's managed to co-opt. So I think that's an enormous problem which we haven't solved.
1: Thank you, Rod and James. And finally, Nathan Riser writes in The Spectator this week about Durham University. It was once at the top of the league tables just under Oxford and Cambridge. But has this all changed? Nathan, who's a writer and former student from Durham, is here to make his case. Also joining is Imogen Usherwood, another writer and recent graduate from Durham University. Nathan and Imogen, thank you very much for joining us. And Nathan, in the magazine this week, you write about the decline of Durham University, which previously was one of Britain's best universities. What seems to have happened?
6: Well, quite simply, from a numbers perspective, for the last seven years, Durham has been dropping down in the Times Higher Education World University rankings. It's currently sitting at 162. Now that's quite different to where it was 10 years ago and alongside this numerical ranking shift, there seems to be a change in the culture of a university I loved, graduated from in 2017 and ever since seemed to have seen a shift in.
1: Can you outline a bit what that culture was like when you were there?
6: Yeah, so Durham's always had a a equal emphasis between academia and social life. It's a small university in a small town where students very much revel in the idea that they can get a good degree, really engage with an academic department, but also have a very academic social life outside of it. That might mean university sports, it might mean society involvement, might be getting involved in the platinum, the newspaper, or, or the drama society, but it's been this culture of an equal mix of social and academic life, and perhaps a sort of, a sort of lacking in the political involvement that some other universities have had in the last 10 years.
1: Imogen, you also went to Durham. Can you tell us a bit about your assessment of the culture there and whether you also think that it's in decline?
7: Well, yeah, I graduated from Durham in 2021, so the year just gone. I really, really enjoyed my time there, even with a pandemic that struck, I think, pretty much exactly in the middle of my time. I do agree with Nathan's assessment that it did, in that when I was there, it really did feel like this place where you could get a great academic degree, the courses were really tough, but equally there was this huge emphasis on extracurriculars and other things like the the sport and the theatre and the music and student journalism and media in particular at Durham are incredibly strong and I always felt really lucky to be in an environment surrounded by so many people but I do so maybe I can't monitor the shift of culture quite as much in that sense because I left fairly recently and was there fairly recently but I think there is this sense that if Durham had this kind of traditional reputation of being um, this kind of ex public schoolboys place, I think a lot of students do resent that reputation. I always did, because to me, it's more about this place where you can pursue so many different interests and ambitions rather than somewhere that posh kids go if they don't get into Oxbridge. So I really appreciated that sense of it. And I think maybe this shift in culture, if there is one, comes from the fact that a lot of students resent this stereotype that Durham has and are trying to kind of shift against it and show that actually that's not what students there are like and that's not what all of the students want from their experience at Durham.
6: Yeah, I think I definitely agree with that as someone who went to a state school myself and then went to Durham was confronted by a large amount of ex-public and private school students. But I think the difficulty is the numbers still show. I mean, it's still a 37% privately educated university intake compared to the average of 7% across the UK that's privately educated. So the the people are still there that would you derive that culture from. So it's interesting that it's kind of changed to perhaps those people less influencing the culture of Durham so I think it's definitely still there in terms of the kind of student body makeup hasn't changed that much and I think I do agree with your assessment though that is I'm not sure what it's like now for you because I graduated in 2017 but that culture is definitely still quite pervasive at that time so it's quite interesting to see see that the cultural shift has been quite rapid actually in a space of five five years.
1: And Nathan can you tell us about this man Mark Hillary who recently pulled some of his funding for Durham?
6: Yeah so Mark Hillary he's Durham University's largest single donor and over the last 10 years has donated some 7 million to the university, particularly to the college he went to, Collingwood College. And last month, over the ongoing code restrictions still in place at Durham University, he decided to pull future funding. And the coverage of that in the press was great because, of course, they talk about the art centre he endowed and the new JCR he refurbished for Collingwood. But the bigger mention was him putting his card behind the bar on student student nights at Collingwood College. Mm-hmm. So it's very interesting that what's happening to Durham has actually resulted in arguably one of their most proud students, one of their most proud alumni, making such a drastic shift to pull their funding.
1: Imogen, what do you make of this idea that Nathan puts across that most universities have been involved in the culture wars, but Durham as a place doesn't really want to be involved in them? Do do you agree with that?
7: I I think it's an interesting one. I think because Durham, perhaps more than a lot of other universities historically, has had this very specific reputation that it kind of, as we've said, is kind of where the, the ex-public school kids kind of went off to, that everyone seemed sort of quite content that that was what it was. And I don't know if maybe this this shift in this culture war for want of a better phrase, if I guess that's what you wanted to call it, is the fact that a lot of students there don't align themselves with that. And if if that creates this kind of case of division where... I always kind of resented this reputation that Durham might have had, because I, whether I kind of feel like I should be associated with that or not, I really felt that that's not where Durham's strengths lie as a university. And I think a lot of students, whether they're from different, they're not from the south of England, they're not privately educated, they're not white, they're not straight or whatever, that they don't feel like they can find themselves in that. So I think maybe a lot of the reason for this is just because if a university has had this very clear supposed reputation and then all of the students there go actually we don't want to be part of this we don't relate to this and we think it's time that things change then I think that's inevitable and perhaps that's why Durham seems to have garnered this much attention recently because previously people maybe haven't thought of it as the kind of university that had those kind of debates Um, but I think it's healthy and it's good that we are starting to kind of recognise that and that students are actually saying I want to feel welcome at my own university and I want to feel that the culture reflects me and my interests and
1: so on and what about the student union nathan what, what role is it playing in all of this
6: i think the student union has long been a point of parody at durham since my time there and i think they are not helping the debate in durham currently i i like you want to see a durham that's welcoming to everyone to which everyone can partake in an experience and have a good time but i think the student union has been a bit of a breeding ground for polarisation. So on the one side, you have the elected members of it, who've tended to veer very far left, as you would expect from a student union in the United Kingdom. But then also, for some reason, it's been a protest ground for people aligning themselves on the very far right. So in the recent elections, Sophie Corcoran, a commentator for GB News, ran on a platform of anti wokism in my time at Durham in 2017, there was a gentleman called Tom Harwood, who's now a GB News political correspondent, who also ran on a similar anti-woke platform to be an NUS delegate. So I look at the Student Union and see it as a group that's not helping Durham become a better place because it's only aligning itself to one side of the political spectrum when Durham has a wealth of experience of students within it.
7: Yeah, I, I guess I would just add that I feel like the Student Union has been this kind of I never personally engaged with the Students' Union really during my time at all at Durham, but it did seem to be this kind of sight of people of both ends of the political spectrum kind of with with their different views and those polarised opinions. Um, yeah, that's kind of all I'd really add to that.
1: Great. And just finally, given the kind of change in culture at Durham, and if you had your time again, do you think you'd apply there once again?
6: Yeah, I think I still would.
7: Imogen? Yeah, I would, because I'm really grateful for the experience it gave me. And I think... Everybody who went there, we all kind of had our gripes with it and we've had our, our issues with it. But ultimately, it was a really fun place to be an undergraduate and the course is great and the, all the different things you can do. Yeah, I think I would. And it's good to see that hopefully people will keep doing the same and that more and more people will feel welcome and able and comfortable to apply and go to Durham in the future.
1: Imogen and Nathan, thank you very much for joining. Thank you. Thank you.
0: And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to The Spectator to read the articles we discussed on the podcast? And if you subscribe today, you'll also get a £20 Amazon gift voucher. Just go to spectator.co.uk slash voucher. I'm William Moore.
1: And I'm Laura Prendergast, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.